Welcome to Beginner Women, a podcast where we throw out our adult agendas and focus on what it takes to shape a new future for girls and young women. From education and career to health and wealth, we talk to experts, thought leaders, and extraordinary women who will challenge the way you think about girls, women, and ambition. Here's your host, Katherine Cornfield. Welcome to Beginner Women. I'm Katherine Cornfield, founder of Ambitious, and that's Ambitious with a She, where we take a unique approach to leadership and career development. We've helped hundreds of girls and young women to develop autonomy, agency, and purpose by equipping them with the critical skills and knowledge they need to thrive today and in tomorrow's world. We started this podcast because we know how important everyday role models are, and we want to empower you, parents, educators, and other caring adults with smart, actionable strategies to help the beginner women in your lives reach their full potential. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of Beginner Women. I am totally, totally psyched to be joined today by Caro Lutfi, Executive Director of Apathy is Boring. And if you have not heard about Apathy is Boring, you should. It is a nonpartisan organization working on a national scale to educate and engage Canadian youth in democracy, an entirely relevant topic for today, just a few short days before our federal election. Caro is a first-generation Canadian who started actually as an intern at Apathy is Boring in 2013 and then went on to take up the national leadership role less than two years later. That's a story in and of itself. Carol was named one of 19 prominent young Canadians to watch in 2017 on a CBC series called We Are Canada, and she regularly shares her very informed youth perspective on civic and political engagement with the media. For instance, she's been featured on CTV, CBC, and Global News, and so we're very, very fortunate here on Beginner Women to have her with us today. We're going to talk a little bit about Kara's own story and her career path so far. We're going to talk a lot about youth engagement in politics, and we're going to cover also the state of civic discourse in general and what the impacts might be on young people. For those of you who know me, This is seriously one of my favorite topics, so warning, I will be geeking out today. Welcome to Beginner Women, Carol Lutfi. Thank you so much for joining us today, especially so close to the election. You must be really, really busy. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yes, it's busy here. It's exciting. It's an exciting time for us. Well, yes, uh, election season is always interesting, and uh, and we'll be talking more about that soon. But before we do, I kind of want to jump right in. I started my research, and of course, I came across your walrus talk, sort of top and center on Google. And I really, really loved the quote that you start with in your talk, and I want to start there too. Democracy is not fundamentally national, nor is democracy fundamentally about voting. It's about people taking charge of the conditions under which they live. That's a really powerful message. Mm -hmm. Do you remember who the author was? I don't remember who the author was, but we spent a year or so doing research um, on different philosophers and and what they thought about democracy and their perspectives on it. And this was one that really stuck out to me. Um, but I can look it up and let you know. Okay. All right. Well, we'll add that to the show notes after the fact. Uh, it was a Daniel somebody, but but we'll we'll circle back on that and put it into our show notes when we publish. But I too uh, found that message to be very 
very powerful. And, and it really resonated with me strongly, especially because I think that's a really good way of framing engagement for young people. And I, like you, believe really strongly in the power and promise of today's young people. But for you at Apathy is Boring, this is your core mission. So if you will just start, if you could tell us a little bit about Apathy is Boring and the work you do, and how is it that your organization encourages young people to actually take charge of the conditions under which they live? Mm-hmm. Okay. So actually, as you repeated that, it did come to me. Um, the author's name is Daniel Chemis. K-E-M-M-I-S. But to answer your latest question, um, Apathy is Boring is a youth-led organization. We are pan-Canadian, we're nonpartisan, and our mission fundamentally is to engage other young people in our democracy, so to engage our peers. Um, And for us, it's really about building democracy from the ground up and ensuring that the voices who haven't traditionally been heard in decision-making spaces are part of those conversations. Uh, And there's a lot of young people who haven't been heard in our formal institutions. And so that's really what we're tackling. I, I am really, like I said, I'm, I'm going to geek out on this subject. So Uh this is something that, that I really firmly believe strongly in. And I think that that idea of bringing young people into the conversation um, is really critical. And many of them in my own experience and in my own programming are engaged in issues. They're interested in shaping their future. So tell me how Apathy is Boring actually got started. And like slight sidebar, but also equally relevant to our listeners here on Beginner Women, how did you go from intern to executive director in less than two years? (laughs) Okay, those are two big questions. Uh, I'll start start with Apathy is Boring's history. So uh, it all started when a fashion photographer from BC a choreographer from the Yukon and a filmmaker from Quebec met at a party in Montreal. It sounds like I'm about to tell a joke and I'm not. Um, No, I love it though. And they, uh, they were frustrated that none of their friends were going to get out and vote. And this was back in 2004. So they decided it wasn't an organization. It was just a group of friends um, who decided to make as much noise as possible, mobilize their peers, mobilize their communities uh, and support young people in being heard that election. So they, they got a lot of artists on board. Um, they, they were quite successful in making a mark in terms of uh, being heard and being seen by young people across the country. After the election, there was so much interest in what they had done uh, that foundations and other community sector players reached out and said, hey, we actually don't have this in Canada right now, um, a youth-led initiative working to support young people to be involved in our democracy. And we think this should be a project that, that works year round, not just uh, pops up during, you know, during an election campaign. So they decided to start an organization. Um, and, and they were like between the ages of 20 and 25 or something. They were, they're all quite young. And 15 years later, um, now uh, we we maintain our approach as a youth-led organization, which is really important to us in terms of ensuring that we're always relevant to youth culture and that we're adapting and innovating. And you can imagine that Apathy is Boring back in 2004, the way it operated had to have been very different than Apathy is Boring today. Oh, and, yes, absolutely. Yeah, like Facebook didn't exist back in 2004. So just to think about how we're, we're communicating, how we're gathering, how we're holding space as young people, 
uh, is constantly changing and evolving with, you know, information technologies and, and social trends and the rest. So, um, so that's been really important to Apathy is Boring over the years. So that's a little bit about the organization's history. Myself, uh, I started as an intern. Um, one summer I took a, on a communications, it was a paid summer internship uh, in, a, in communications. And I was attracted to the organization um, for a few reasons. One, it was quite creative. It, was a, it looked like a, from, the, from my external perspective on the organization was that it was quite a dynamic uh, creative organization working on systems change. So, mm-hmm. so not working in what I would call service provision. So service provision is, um, is absolutely necessary and crucial, uh, and focuses on, um, providing services to people who need it the most. So for example, feeding the homeless, uh, who need food, uh, whereas systems change is, is changing the systems and conditions, uh, that lead to those results in the first place. So the, the comparable example would be changing the conditions, uh, that lead to homelessness, in our communities. So I was always really interested in systems change work, which is harder to quantify, harder to show impact because you're working on really long-term issues. Um, but for me, what really interested me was this root cause of the problems that we're seeing in our society. And apathy is boring was tackling that by getting young people involved in our democracy, which then leads to, um, what I would, argue are more equitable outcomes across Canada in terms of our policies and programs, because it's actually being influenced by all of our, all the Canadians um, who are participating in our democratic process. So it was that paired with this creative um, aspect to apathy is boring that attracted me. Those, those, that combination I found was really quite unique. And I came in as an intern and then a lot of change happened in the organization while I was there. So the founder, one of the founders, uh, who is also the executive director for a decade, left that that summer when I had joined as an intern. Um, so it was a big transition period for the organization. And I kind of fell in right, right in that moment. Yeah. Uh, and the organization decided to to pause and and look at our impact and assess whether or not we were still relevant to youth culture and what, where we had to adapt and where we had to change and what were we doing that was really successful and we wanted to maintain. So I was part of a kind of a, a big um, uh, pause for the organization. And through that, I had the opportunity to develop skills and networks. Um, and ultimately, the organization, the board came to me and said, you know, we'd like you to step in as a director of operations. So after intern, I became a coordinator for about nine months. And then they said, uh, we'd like you to step in as director of operations, which was um, an interim leadership role because there was no executive director at that time. So I, I was reporting to the board uh, and did that for a bit and then decided to take on the role more permanently. Well, uh, that's fantastic. I think what that, what that says to me is that it's not just uh, right place, right time for, for, for people like you and in your position uh, leading an organization. It's also that you were there and present and being um, fully engaged and involved in the conversations that were that were shaping the direction of the organization and its future. And I think that there's oftentimes, uh, well, I think that's a really good place for young women to, to be, um, 
in order to build, like you say, those skills and, and that perspective and the experience to be able to step into the role, the, the leadership role. So thank you very much for, for sharing that. And I also uh, most definitely appreciate uh, your attraction, the factors that attracted you to Apathy is Boring. I remember back then, and I too was attracted. I was in a different role and in a different place, but but I intersected with, with Apathy is Boring. And I do recall that, well, outward projected creativity that was new and different in, in a space that was kind of dusty and, uh, and a little dull. And also that um, systems lens, uh, which was not so much focused on sort of one, one moment in time where young people would have power, but, but over, uh, over the course of time and into the systems and conversations that, that, that shape society. So I, I totally, um, appreciate and, and understand your, your, your commitment and your attraction to it. So let's shift a little bit. You talked also in your walrus talk about a young woman, uh, who was, uh, I think you said something rising to dent the future. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about what that means to apathy is boring and what, um, what you are doing with, with young people right now. And in particular, there's something called the rise project. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yes, absolutely. Um, so our two main program pillars as an organization uh, that are public facing is our RISE program and our vote program. So our RISE program is really about um, bringing young people together, building capacity skills network and supporting them to tackle a local problem in their community uh, so that they can be part of what we call kind of the solution making process. Uh, which I'll get I'll get into in a second, but what I'll first do is I'll actually just frame how we as an organization view social change happening and then how yeah. programs fall within that. So um, the way that we view social change happening and we and we view social change within the context of our democracy is requiring three players, three main roles at play. One, which we call the shakers, second makers, yep. and third uptakers. And I'll explain those three. So Ooh, I like that. <laughs> so the shakers are people on the front lines raising awareness about social injustice, issues that they're facing, that their communities are facing. Uh, think of protests, for example. So yeah. their role is really to bring issues to the forefront of public debate, awareness, conversation, bring attention to issues uh, that you know other Canadians are maybe not paying attention to, to the, to the degree that they should be. So shakers play a really crucial role in our democracy in terms of bringing awareness and attention to injustice and, and, and issues of importance. But if you stop there, then you've got frustrations um, and, and agitation, but you don't necessarily have the solutions. So the next role are makers. And makers are people working in whatever sector, uh, but looking at coming up with solutions to the complex social problems we're facing. So that involves innovating, um, testing, evaluating, trying out new programs, uh, you know, whether that's connected to policy proposals, um, new initiatives, new products, whatever it may be. But they're testing and, and evaluating solutions to the complex problems that the shakers are warning us about. And that's great. But if you stop there, then you've got, you know, a couple great solutions that doesn't necessarily lead to long term change. 
So then you need uptakers and uptakers are people in positions of power and influence. Um, they can be policymakers. They can be folks with a lot of resource uh, that can fund long-term initiatives and the like. And so they're people in positions of power um, who can take the ideas of the makers, these solutions that have been tested and proven and take them to scale and ensure long-term, uh, long-term success on these issues. And for us as an organization, Shakers without makers is, as I mentioned, these frustrations without ways forward. Makers without uptakers is ideas without, again, as I mentioned, this long-term impact. Right. Voter engagement is a broken democracy because people in positions of power and influence are no longer accountable to their constituents. But did you, is that a frame that is sort of grounded in academic work or is that through a theory of change that Apathy is Boring developed? It's brilliant. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, so this was part of this, we, when we took that pause, that year of pause, we spent a whole year doing research um, and drawing from lots of different um, theories, academic, Marshall Gantz's model of community organizing, um, Stanford Social Innovation Review had lots of great resources that we pulled from. Uh, and thought leaders, and then from that adapted it to to us at our context and our and our on the ground experience. And so, for us as an organization, our Rise program falls in under the makers category. So it's really about bringing new voices, young people who haven't traditionally been very engaged in their communities, mm-hmm. bringing them into community organizing spaces and helping them develop the skills and the networks to come up with solutions to problems. So it's helping them think as makers in our society. And then our vote program falls under the uptakers uh, category, which is really about ensuring that young people are part of the decision-making process today that will you know, decide and determine who those uptakers are in our society. So, so that's kind of where our programs fit within this, with this broader effort of social change. That's... Uh... Uh, clearly you, you gave the work a lot of thought in terms of how to situate and where, where to make the most effective intervention. And all of this, of course, emerging out of, um, a youth led initiative. So proof is in the pudding. Obviously young people do have, um, a very significant, uh, contribution to make and can, uh, do that at, at a systems level over time. That is really something I, I guess, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the work that I'm doing with, uh, ambitious and I, I would probably place that work in uptakers as well. Um, but, but from the flip side, like, and it's almost complimentary in the sense that, um, I'm encouraging and through our programs, uh, we're encouraging people, uh, young women to really be shakers and makers and voters. Um, but what I'm hoping is through the work to sort of, uh, strengthen financial literacy, civic, uh, literacy and, um, and digital literacy that, that young women will end up in those positions of influence and decision-making themselves so that they can, uh, affect the change. But I, I take your point too, that we, you know, the political decision-makers aren't the only ones, but, uh, without the voters engaged, they, um, they, they don't have the credibility that, that they need to, to, um, to lever what, uh, 
I guess the changes that that need to be made in in terms of uh, public policy. So that is fantastic. And um, I did not find that on your website, I must admit. So I'm really glad that you shared that. Um, As I think I mentioned to you before, I did spend some time working in politics. And then I followed that with a good number of years working in a similar area to Apathy is Boring right now, which is this sort of the citizenship education and civic engagement of young people. it it was a little dusty. Um, apathy is boring. Was uh, uh, was new at the time, um, but I don't do that day in day out anymore. Uh, give us so I'm not sort of right in touch with um, the most recent and current data, and I'm not looking for you to like quote numbers unless you have them off the top of your head, which would be fantastic. But give us the lay of the land. How engaged are Canadian youth in civic life these days? I know it's broad and general. And then how well does that translate literally into their participation in political decision-making and voting? We are in an election season after all. So what, you know, how, how, how close or far away are we to your end state systems changed? Mm. Okay. So um, we're actually going to be putting out a research report on this uh, in the coming months. So keep an eye out for it. But um, what so we've done a lot of research on this. What we've found, and, and a lot of um, other yeah. organizations would validate this, is that young young Canadians care. Young people care about issues that affect them, their families, and their communities. And they are increasingly participating in what we would call informal civic spaces. So that's um, social, that's protests, for example, or gathering uh, on social media, social media movements and the like. And young people are choosing those spaces to be heard because mm-hmm. they see themselves reflected in those spaces, their platforms that they're comfortable with. Um, and they are increasingly consuming news, content, sharing, talking about issues that matter to them uh, amongst, amongst their friends. What we're not seeing is that same engagement in what we would call formal civic spaces. So formal civic spaces being showing up on election day to cast a ballot or maintaining a dialogue with your elected representatives in between elections yeah. and the like. And for us, that's that's the big disconnect. Um, it's not that young Canadians don't care or aren't trying to be heard on, on issues that matter to them. It's a question of how they're choosing to be heard. Uh, and for us, that really comes down to an, what we would call an action problem. So we think it's great that they're showing up in informal civic spaces, but we think they also need to be showing up as much in our formal civic spaces. I would, though, say that I don't think that's just on young Canadians. Um, Of course, we're doing a lot of that work as an organization to bring them that information, uh, help them kind of navigate these formal civic spaces, um, equip them to fully participate but we also think that those formal civic spaces need to do a lot more in terms of adapting to be responsive to young Canadians and diverse groups of Canadians. And I use this analogy that I came up with recently. It's a bit silly, but, but I think it, it helps convey the message. If you think of the election as a house party that's being hosted by all the major political parties, all, most older Canadians uh, are getting personalized invitations, phone calls, asking them to attend, asking them to participate. Um, They're even asking them like, what kind of food would you like at this party? (laughs) What kind of entertainment would you you like? A majority of young Canadians uh, on the flip side are, are not only not being asked or invited and having kind of personal invitations by, by local candidates, but they're not expected to show up. And then if they do show up, 
not many people at the party look like them or have their lived experience. And it's not set up to be conducive to them. And so for me, for us, it's also about ensuring that whether it's older Canadians, candidates, the media, they're also doing the work of not um, continuing to push these negative stereotypes of young Canadians um, by assuming that we're not going to show up, that automatically creates a certain barrier for us. And so for us, it's both the work both needs to be done in terms of helping young Canadians shift from solely engaging in informal civic spaces to also participating in formal civic spaces. But then we also need society at large and the system to adapt and be more responsive to us. Right. So you you have said that you resist that cliche of disinterested youth, and clearly the the research is showing that um, that young Canadians do care. And the distinction, obviously, between the formal and the informal is really important to surface for those who don't think about it um, that often. But I I, I think I like the idea that you would shift the conversation from why is it that don't that that young people um, don't care, which is sort of that that attitude in your analogy, which is like, why are they even here? Uh, um, uh, they're different and we don't expect them to show up to what actually stands in the way of young people when it get, when it comes to getting in, engaged and what would be the barriers, what would be the way to sort of open the door and invite them into the party. I think that's also a really uh, important distinction. So I understand that you did do some work around this question and I'm, uh, I think it was with Abacus Data, and I'm wondering what you learned about those barriers, um, whether they be sort of tangible or intangible, um, and how is it that, and, and what, what did you, what can you tell us about what it would take to remove those barriers for young people in their formal engagement? Okay, so there's a, there's a few things. One, um, we did a study back in 2017 with Enveronics. And that was really important because what we did is um, we looked at at cohort we work with. So we we typically focus on 18 to 30 or 18 to 34-year-olds. And we looked at whether or not they're engaged or unengaged, why, what their motivations are around that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is, is that people often talk about young people as all being one, kind of one way, thinking a certain way, voting a certain way, um, thinking that there's one strategy to, to engage them or thinking that there are, you know, the same barriers that affect all young Canadians in terms of why they're not engaging. And for us, it was really important to kind of break that narrative apart and say, you know, we're talking about roughly half of the population um, of, of the young people we're talking about are engaged and half of them, not so much, uh, but for very different reasons within, within that divide. Right. So for some people it's, um, you know, they've got barriers around logistics, for example, or they live, you know, you're talking about a teen mom who um, is is working mm-hmm. two jobs and has a small family, you know, like there are very different barriers around her life and her experience in terms of why she doesn't have capacity and time to participate in formal civic spaces versus um, a young person who maybe has just finished post-secondary, is employed, um, really focuses on kind of having a good time, having a social life, going out. Uh, and, and the barriers around that young person tend to be motivational. And it tends to be, you know, related to what her friends are valuing and uh, what her community is talking about and what she's being asked to do or not to do as a member of society. So what was really important for us is to break apart. So we ended up defining six different groups 
of young people um, and identified whether they're engaged, whether they're not engaged, what are their motivations. And then that allows us as an organization to target those audiences, um, depending on what those barriers may be or what those motivations may be, and be really intentional in our strategies. So one of the things that's you know, quite simple. Um, if you take, so one of the groups makes up about 30%, we call them the bros and the Britneys. And they will actually be motivated by peer pressure, by kind of a, a community, mm-hmm. community engagement trend. So if they are asked to participate, if their friends are participating, uh, if they view it as being of relevance, they will participate. So that's kind of the easiest group to flip. Um, and for them, all it really requires is being asked. It's really that simple. So for that audience, what we're asking candidates to do and, and parties and other Canadians is to pay attention to them, to talk to them, to ask them what they care about, to listen to them, and then you know to formally ask them to participate in the process. So it can be as simple as that. You know That, that can be one of the barriers that's really easy um, to, to pass over. For others, it's going to require a lot more work um, as a country, as, a, as communities, in terms of um, you know, creating space for whether it's more marginalized communities to be heard and reflected in our formal civic spaces. And the barriers they're facing is a lot more than just you know, showing up on election day. Um, but even if they do show up, they don't see themselves reflected in our House of Commons. Their voice is never heard. The issues that they care about are never being talked about. Um, you know, there's lots of examples um, you can point to, particularly among Indigenous communities. And so for us, it's really important that, that when we talk about barriers, it really depends on who mm-hmm. we're talking about, where they are, who they are, um, and recognize the diversity of a young person in a remote part of Nunavut versus a rural community in Alberta or a young person in downtown Toronto, for example. And, and those are really important distinctions. And, you know, I think that that's the the this i guess it would be socioeconomic and psychographic segmentation that that you did there to um to really understand the differences uh in those barriers and then and then in what the uh what the interventions would be to to sort of break them down and you're right there's probably a sliding scale there from what's the lowest hanging fruit and the easiest which is invite the britneys and the what what were the britneys and the and the bros, you know, just invite them to the party all the way to um, the more, the most challenging, um, where you're talking about sort of that systems level, sort of reflecting in the issues, reflecting in the spaces, reflecting in the House of Commons even. And and um, so it's really, it's good work. And um, I know we're, we are in election season. I don't really want to talk about um, the election per se, but I did notice that there was uh, some work you've done around the impact uh, of news consumption on youth and youth engagement. And I understand that it, the, the good news is that, that there is still trust among young people in uh, traditional media sources, but it does seem that they are aware of and reporting and seeing more and more deliberate misinformation and inflammatory or divisive sort of online content. And that stuff um, really... Uh, it, it drives me crazy. It goes way, way back. Um, uh, I, I would be curious about what you think. I mean, obviously it doesn't speak well of the current state of civic discourse, but how do you um, engage young people, especially girls and young women who are not yet 
of voting age um, to get engaged when the adults of the world are using this, these tactics, misinformation and, and sort of deliberate divisiveness to try and shape our collective and what we hope will be sustainable future. What, what impact does that have in the long run in your mind? Mm. Well, um, so yes, as you mentioned, we did a study with Abacus earlier this summer to, to kind of take a snapshot of the context that we're in going into this election. And um, one of the topics was really diving into how are people consuming news and information heading into the election. What we did find is a majority of young people, it's, it's about 57%, um, hear about major news events through non-traditional sources, non-traditional media sources. So that's social media and word of mouth, right? So a majority of young people are consuming news and content either through social media or word of mouth. Of that, we found that 55% see deliberate disinformation at least once a week online. So they are seeing it, or at least they think they're, they're seeing it. Um, but it also means that there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there right now. Um, what's scary about the times that we're in is that all the content we're being fed comes through algorithms. And algorithms want to give you content uh, that you want to see, not content that I would argue you need to see. So, you know, the way, the way algorithms work is that they, they want clicks um, or they will, they will um, push to the top of your newsfeed content that has had, you know, the most clicks, the most views, the most shares. And people will likely engage with a post that they have a strong emotional reaction towards. So if you feel really um, angry about something, you're likely to comment. Or if you feel really happy about something, you're likely to share it. So both positive and negative, uh, what we found is, is the way disinformation um, is spreading right now is that they're, they're creating content that would elicit a strong emotional reaction so that people click on it, so that it makes it to the top of a news feed. Um, and that's really scary because it means that we, are, we need to be even more vigilant uh, in terms of what we're consuming and what we're believing coming across our news feeds. And this is an issue we, you know, we didn't have to deal with this to this extent um, last federal election and then even less the one before that. Uh, and it's getting worse and worse. Uh, and so what, what we're doing right now is in our education programs and work, we're, we're helping young people recognize that this is an issue and do the work um, of checking sources and most importantly, not continuing to share or spread disinformation because a lot of people are, are sharing it, not recognizing um, that, it, that, that it isn't um, accurate, uh, trusted content. Uh, the problem is we can't take it all down, at least us as, as an organization, as a nonprofit. There's so much out there. So, so the work right now is really about equipping people to navigate it uh, and to think twice and to recognize there are you know, bodies out there trying to influence how you're thinking and how you're going to vote or how you're going to participate. And that that influence is, is um, you know, it's it's like the echo chamber, but that that influence is driven uh, by the the psychology of sharing as opposed to, and the and the anger and the fear a lot of times, as opposed to the issues uh, proper, as opposed to sort of a civilized um, debate even on the substance of the of whatever is confronting us in in an election and in between elections so that uh that that is sort of 
really at the early stages, because as you said, this is something that evolves, it has evolved very rapidly, even since the last election. Um, and it is having an impact, not just on young people in whatever segment they fit, um, but also on adults uh, who are deciding whether or not to go to the polls and and what issues matter to them. So this podcast, even though uh, Ambitious works with girls and young women, we started it because we recognized that uh, there's a whole world around those those girls uh, and young women. And this the, the, the audience of this podcast is um, those people, those parents and educators and caring adults, they're the, the everyday role models that influence young women um, in their day to day lives, as opposed to, you know, we're not talking Beyonce or the, you know, the big, huge rock star role models. We're talking about the people who intersect every day um, with young women and have. Um, a very real impact just through their actions. So I guess my question is, and this is where I I think we'll, we'll wrap it up is, is for you to maybe share your message for our audience, those people who are empowering and equipping the beginner women in their lives and helping them to get engaged and take charge of the conditions under which they live. What, What would you tell them? I love that throwback to that quote. I think, I mean, one of the things that we think is so important is um, to really recognize and to think about democracy uh, and its role, not only um, in terms of how democracy is important in terms of how it's serving us as constituents, right? So when we're talking about youth engagement, it's it's essential to think about um, how participating in our democracy will then be responsive to the diverse realities of young people today. Uh, and that it's it's both about ensuring that we have a robust uh, system of governance and one that is able to respond to the issues that we're facing right now. So, I mean, for us, the, the one thing I, I would really encourage people to do and to think about is how are you creating space for for young women, for young people to see themselves reflected in these formal civic spaces? Um, if you're in a position of power or influence, what is it that you can do? to ensure that, um, that their voices are, that they're supported, um, and that we're actually changing the system from within as well. We need to be, we need to be supporting and encouraging more people to step up, but we also need to be ensuring that the system uh, is opening doors and actually, um, giving those seats at the table to diverse young women. Um, I also think we need to think intentionally about how we're centering indigenous communities in our work moving forward as a country. Um, and we have a lot to learn from various indigenous communities in terms of, of um, creating space for them you know, to, to make decisions, to participate in, in defining um, the way forward for their communities. And I think it's the same thing for women, right? We, we want to be making the decisions that will affect us and our communities. And uh, we need to be thinking through the intersectionalities of, of what that means as we're shaping uh, a system of governance in our country. So I think, put simply, um, it's about inviting people to participate. And then once they're showing up, it's about actually creating space for them. Uh, to be heard in in a meaningful way and and to have decision making power. Well, that is a a great place to to leave it in terms of engaging our listeners and prompting them to think about their own role in this larger sort of challenge of of civic engagement and youth engagement and and in creating the kind of uh, country and society that we all want to live in and where where everybody is. Uh, 
everybody is benefiting and everybody's sort of around the table, so to speak. Is there anything else as a last thought that you would like to share uh, as we wrap up? I would like anybody listening to this to ensure that you are registered and that you are going to go and vote on October 21st. Um, And not only that, but that you will do the work of bringing along with you a friend or a colleague or a family member that might not be likely to participate on election day. So if we all did the work of, of inviting and supporting our community members to show up, uh, then our democracy will look quite different. And I encourage you to be part of that. Perfect. We will do that for sure. I will do that. And Ambitious will do that. So thank you very much again for taking the time this morning, Carol, and for sharing um, all of your work and your thoughts and your perspective. And uh, we will uh, see you out there on the interwebs on election day, I am sure. Thanks again. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on Beginner Women, a show where we throw out our adult agendas to shape a new future for girls. Check out our show notes for the resources we talked about in today's episode and for the actionable insights you can use to nurture and empower the girls you know. If you like what you hear on our show, write us a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe wherever you find your favorite shows. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Ambitious. That's A-M-B-I-S-H-E-O-U-S.